Let's turn to God's word. Uh, if you will open your Bibles this morning to the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, we're going to be in chapter 15 this morning. And this is uh, the beginning of a little mini-series we're doing called Centered, uh, the foundation, glory, and mission of the gospel. As many of you know, um, one of our seven shared values as a Sovereign Grace Church is gospel-centered doctrine and preaching. A summary of this is in your notes, so I've got that in there for you. Here's a summary. We believe that the gospel... The good news of God's saving activity in Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of his redemptive acts, the center of the Bible's story, and the essential message for our faith, life, and witness. We are committed to preaching the gospel, singing the gospel, praying the gospel, and building our churches upon the gospel. Our ultimate hope in all that we do is not our plans and labors, but the perfect life, substitutionary death, victorious resurrection, and glorious ascension of Jesus Christ. So as you can see, we, we don't only see the gospel as the way to get saved. It is, it is the path to salvation, but we also see the gospel as the very foundation, as the very center for living the Christian life. In our church, we desire that our theology affect our methodology. And so later in this little mini-series, you're going to see, we're going to talk about the, the launching, the upcoming launch of children's ministry and how gospel-centered doctrine and preaching informs that. And we're going to talk about in January launching small group ministry called discipleship groups. And we're going to talk about how gospel ministry, how the gospel informs all of those things. Gospel doctrine should result in a gospel culture. And that's what we're hoping that you have experienced in our church and that we will grow in experiencing even more together as we continue to seek the Lord in the future. So we hope that this miniseries helps you see how gospel-centered doctrine and preaching really informs and inspires every ministry here at Sovereign Grace Church. So let's, let's let the Word tell us that in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. And let's remember, we're, this, we're not turning to this book like we turn to a school book, like we turn to a newspaper or a blog on the internet. This is the inspired, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative, saving, and transforming word of God. Chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried 
and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is, in, is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Oh, Heavenly Father, would you center us afresh on the gospel this morning? God, we lose our grip on the gospel so easily. We, our eyes can be distracted. We look to other things thinking that they can satisfy and save and rescue us. Turn our eyes back upon Jesus this morning, we pray. God, not, not just to remember the greatness of our salvation, but to inspire us in our mission. We ask these things for your glory and the advancement of your kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. Amen. One of my favorite stories is, uh, is reading how Charles Spurgeon describes his salvation. And I'm going to share that with you this morning. I love how he shares the salvation and the power of the gospel to not merely save him from his sin, but to also progressively inform and transform his entire life. So listen and enjoy. And remember how God's grace has saved you and the hope that God's gospel continues to give to you. Here's the words of Charles Spurgeon. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now if it had not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. I turned down a street and came to a little primitive Methodist church. That was the, call, that was the name of a denomination. Right, so kind of the title may sound a little funny to us. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. <laughs> the text was this, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was I, a thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text, just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart. He said, young man, 
you look very miserable. Aren't you glad I don't do that? Although, Dave, I almost did it to you the other day, I'm, which I'm so sorry about. I didn't mean that. But listen to this. Spurgeon says, well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have those remarks made to me from the pulpit about my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow. It struck right home. And he continued, he continued looking at me. And he said, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey this text. But if you obey this text, at this moment, you will be saved. And lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. Look to Jesus Christ. Look. 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 I'm not exactly. Go read it for yourself, just in case you think I'm trying to. No, this is exactly what happened. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not else, what else he said the rest of the morning. I, I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. I had been wanting to do 50 things, but when I heard the word look, oh, what a charming word. And oh, I looked until I almost, until I could almost look my eyes away. There and then, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. At that moment, I saw the sun. I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. That happy day, I met the Savior, and I learned to cling to his dear feet. I listened to the word of God, and that precious text led me to the cross of Christ. I could have sprung from the seat from which I sat and called out with the wildest of those brethren, I am forgiven. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. What a monument of grace. What a change had taken place in me simply by looking to Jesus. <laughs> I had been delivered. Isn't that so good? I particularly love the phrase, look and live. Look and live, because that wonderfully describes both the gospel's saving power, but also its transforming power. Precious church family, the gospel is not merely our entrance into salvation, and then we move on to deeper teaching. When I was a young believer, that's what I was told. I was saying, well, the gospel, okay, that's how you get saved. But now you need deeper truths. It really, that was called Gnosticism, but that's a whole other story. Tim Keller puts it this way, and this is in your notes. We never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life, to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it's more like the hub in a wheel of truth. 
The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, it is the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make all progress in the kingdom. So our main point this morning is this, the gospel of Christ is the saving, transforming, an empowering center of all that we believe and do as Christians and as a church. So our first point as we unpack 1 Corinthians 15 is the priority of the gospel. Paul tells them twice in verses 1 and 2 that he preached the gospel to them. The word gospel means good news. It's really shorthand to describe Christ's virgin birth, his sinless life, his atoning death, his bodily resurrection, and his ascension to heaven. It's the good news of salvation. It's the message of salvation. A message requires the speaking of words. A message requires the proclaiming and explaining of those words. There's a, I don't know if you've, this used to, I used to hear this more often than I do now, but St. Francis of Assisi used to say this, preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Is that biblical? Is, is, it, is our example to be a reflection of what the gospel does to the human heart? You bet. But does anyone ever get saved by your good example, by itself. You know, I used to work for Shell Oil Company in um, human resource management in New Orleans. And I'll never forget, there was the, the company nurse. Uh, so often I had to send prospective employees for checkups, things like that, to the nurse, drug tests and all that. So I talked to her a lot I'll never forget the day that she came into my office angry. I said, what's wrong? What did I do to you? She said, you never told me you were a Christian. I've never had anyone be angry at me for not telling them I was a Christian. She said, do you know how much I've wanted to be like you, to live the way you live, to treat people the way you treat people, And I just thought I had to work harder to do it and try harder to do it. And I was giving up hope because I know what a sinful, well, she didn't say sinful at that point, what a selfish person I am. I never knew it was because you were a Christian. Isn't that interesting? I, I guess I was just thinking that my good example would somehow mysteriously bring her to Christ. St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel and use the words if necessary. No one ever gets saved by only watching the life of a believer. We preach the gospel. It's good news. It's a message to proclaim. Our good works are not the foundation of the good news. The good news we proclaim is the work that Christ has done on behalf of sinners to reconcile us to God. Our good works exist because we first believe the good news, right? 
I think that's important. For example, how about this for parents? Children coming to faith in Christ is not based upon the ability of parents to be a perfect example of Christ and Christianity to their children. But so it's so easy to somehow start feeling that way. Parents are not the gospel. How about this? All the parents in here, would you repeat that with me? Parents are not the gospel. Isn't that relieving? Isn't that just, that's just a good reminder. Parents who think their actions or works will ultimately save or doom their children are putting their hope in the wrong thing, aren't we? We're putting our hope in in that we can somehow prove that Jesus exists. Oh, it's the gospel that opens their blind eyes. It's the gospel that melts their hard hearts. Parents are not the gospel. But God does call parents to be faithful, to teach and live out the truths of the gospel. So what does a faithful parent look like? These are those questions. I really wish I could have conversations with each one of you. What does a faithful parent look like? Does it look like perfection to you? Does it look like having to be a little bit better than the rest? Does it look like, what does that look like? You know what a faithful gospel parent is? A faithful gospel parent is a repentant parent. A gospel-centered home is not a home where the parents never mess up. A gospel-centered home is a home where the parents sin against God. They sin against each other as spouses. They sin against their kids. And when they sin... They turn in repentance to a faithful Savior whose death on the cross forgave their sins. That's the life that kids need to see. That we sin and fall short of the glory of God, but we have a place to look, right, Spurgeon? Look, look, look. Look where daddy and mommy turn to when we've yelled at each other, when we've been impatient with you, when we've corrected you in our anger. Look where we look. And that's to the cross of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness he gives us and the power he gives us to change. So in verse 3, Paul goes on to say that the gospel that he preached is of first importance. So let's talk about that. Isn't every word in God's word inspired and inerrant and authoritative and sufficient for life and godliness? Why would God say that this phrase... This gospel is of first importance. Of all that he has to say to us in the Bible, the gospel is one main message. So it's not like, oh, so of everything else in the Bible, pay most attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 11. That's not what it's saying. What it's essentially saying is, did you know your whole Bible is telling the story of the gospel? It's one message that we're to embrace and believe and rehearse and remember again and again and again. So it's not just 1 Corinthians 15 he's talking about. He's talking about the entire book has one story. And it's the story of God redeeming sinful mankind from their sins through the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It permeates the book from Genesis to Revelation. This is the message that is of first importance. This message is the priority 
And this message is the gospel. When Paul uses the phrase first importance, he's, he's not merely looking at the most important thing of a list of things. I think we do, don't we do that a lot of times as Christians? We think, okay, what is Christianity? We'll put God first. Okay, and then family second. And then work is third. Work and school is third. Oh, wait, 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 no. Maybe church is third and family or work is... <laughs> I get all messed up even trying to say that. Don't you get messed up trying to keep that in order? I don't think that's what he's talking about, about the gospel is the first of a list of important things. Um, that there's something second most important and something third most important. When Paul said first importance, he was speaking of what some have called the blazing center of God's saving love and grace. This is, this is the place where the fire was lit and it spreads out to consume everything in its path. This is like a, a rock that's dropped in a pond and how the concentric circles ripple out into all directions. You guys, the more we know and love and treasure the gospel, the more it ripples out and it affects the way I love my wife and it affects the way I serve my boss and it affects the way I reach the lost. It's an all-encompassing message. It's the blazing center of what we believe and live upon. This is not just a theological priority. This is a theological centrality. I love what Brian Chappell says here. He says, every passage of Scripture predicts, prepares for, reflects, or results from the person and work of Jesus Christ. So here's, um, can I give you just a little assignment? So tomorrow morning... You know, or whenever you have your time with the Lord and you're going to the scriptures for a devotional time. And would you take that quote and look to see how that quote lives in what you read tomorrow morning? Every passage of scripture predicts, prepares for, reflects, or results from the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the message that is of first importance. You really get a sense of that in verses 1 and 2 when he said, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. So here's talking about the past tense when you were first saved, when God opened your heart, he regenerated you. He opened your eyes to see how sinful you were and the judgment your sins deserved and the love that God is showing you in Jesus and, and the faith he gave you to be saved. And then he goes further. It's not just past tense. Then he says, in which you stand. It's present tense. And then he goes further and he says, by which you are being saved now and the guarantee of salvation in the future until you see the Lord face to face. The gospel changes our past. Man, aren't, aren't you glad? I, I, I had such struggles with outbursts of anger. I hated people. I was so bitter against people. And I thought I was justified to say that because of the way I grew up and the people that rejected me and pushed me away. And I'm so glad that the Lord changes our past. 
that we're not defined and dominated by the kind of man or woman we once were. It affects our present. It determines our future. Do you see the ripple effects? Our entire existence is centered upon and shaped by the gospel. And then just to make sure, Paul doesn't assume the gospel, right? We, we shouldn't assume the gospel. Parents, don't think that just because your child has prayed a prayer of salvation, that that's, that's enough. No, the gospel all the time as they grow up, remembering it, rehearsing it, going deeper in it, appreciating it more, treasuring it more dearly. So Paul doesn't assume the gospel. He keeps reinforcing what it is. And you see that in verses 3 through 5. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. I used to tell our boys when they were growing up, you can remember the gospel on one hand. Christ died for our sins. Just one hand. That you can, you'll never forget the gospel. Just you, whenever you even look at your hand, son, remember the gospel. I want you to see the gospel everywhere. Son, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So what's of first importance? What's the message of first importance? Christ died for our sin. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. The gospel is this good news about Jesus Christ, who was innocent of ever breaking God's commands. He obeyed all of God's commands. And what he did to save us from sin and to save us from the eternal righteous judgment and wrath our sins deserved. He says, we've rebelled against the eternal, holy, loving, perfect, wise, powerful, and righteous creator of the universe by disobeying his laws. That kind of crime deserves the death penalty. And you don't have to go much beyond your own heart to know that. Every one of us has our own man-made laws we have in our relationships we have with people. And if somebody says something to us that we don't like, we have some laws, don't we? And if you break my law of, of speaking to me like that, oof, I'm, I'm, I'm the police, I'm the judge, I'm the jury, I'll bring you to prison myself. We all do that. How do you respond when somebody breaks your laws? Well, how do you think God responds when we break his how do you think he responds? There is a penalty. You, you, you believe others deserve to be penalized when they break your rules. Well, guess what? God has rules too. And if you've broken them, his punishment will last forever. Unless you believe that Christ died for my sins. He died as our substitute, innocent, but he was punished as though he were guilty of every word, sinful word you've said, every sinful action you've committed, and every thought you've had that was in disobedience to him. You didn't even get it out your hands or mouth. You just thought it. And Jesus died for that too. 
He paid the price for our sin that we should have paid. We should have died that death and continue to experience that punishment for the rest of eternity. He absorbed all the wrath and the punishment of God that our sins deserved when he died for our sin. And he was buried. Why does Paul highlight that? Well, because he wants to emphasize Jesus really died. You, you bury dead bodies. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus received that wage on our behalf. And Jesus was raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the proof that God accepted what Jesus did for you. How do I know I'm forgiven? How do I know I can have a righteous standing before God, that I can be right with God? How can I know? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. This was God saying, I accept what Jesus did for you. Trust him. It's finished. What he did is finished. It's not you adding your works to what Jesus did. What Jesus did is enough. And his resurrection tells us that. And then it goes on to say he appeared to the followers which means, which is telling us that this is an objective historical fact. That, that other people saw this. This really happened. This was a historical moment. Jesus died and he took our sins away. He did all the work. He earned our favor, our standing with God, so that we don't have to try to earn God's approval and to earn his forgiveness and to earn his favor. There's nothing that can be added to what Jesus will do for you or has done for you. It doesn't depend on how you feel. It doesn't depend upon your works. This gospel says to us that God loves us with an everlasting love. He accepts us with never-ending acceptance. You guys, that's why the gospel is the foundation and the center of our salvation. Oh boy, but it's so easy to get off center. Have you ever done that in a car? Any dumb thing, just come to me. I probably have done it. I remember I was working in Tulsa, Oklahoma as a bank examiner. What a road the Lord's had me on. I was a bank examiner. I really think that when I came into the bank, I think people didn't know, think, think I was a bank examiner. I think they thought I was there to rob it. I really, I really think so. I was getting ready to move back to college. It was kind of a college work-study sort of a thing. And I was backing my car up. I wasn't paying attention to where I was going. And there was just this little, little curb and then this little grass thing and curb. It wasn't very wide. I didn't realize I was there. And, and I backed my car up. I was going fast. And I backed my car up and I got centered on that. It ripped open my gas tank. Oh my goodness. It's a mess when we don't get centered on the right thing, isn't it? It's just a mess. And so this morning, I would even want to ask you, did you come in this morning and your life hasn't been centered on the gospel? How do we know? Are there some ways that we can know that our life isn't centered on the gospel? Well, one, I would call it emotionalism. That's when our, we allow our feelings to rule our thinking and actions. Being ruled by our feelings causes us to wrongly interpret the facts and circumstances of our lives and wrongly interpret the actions and words of other people. And worst of all, it affects us the way that we see God. 
I tend to interpret my failures as being fatal and final. Um, that thought opens the door to my feelings for, to in, really invade my thought life. And, and, and they so easily take over. Do your feelings take over how you're thinking? So many a times it's that I'm worthless. I'm just a disappointment to God and others. I need regular help getting centered again. I need regular help in remembering the gospel and remembering God's steadfast love for me in Christ. His finished work in making me acceptable to God. This happens to me on a lot of Sundays. Sunday afternoon, I don't know how you spend the afternoon. So often I spend the afternoon remembering all the ways that I feel like I failed you as a pastor. And I'm so thankful for my wife. I'm so thankful for Alan. I'm so thankful for Eric. And then so often, so many of you, I just know, I just, the Lord must have put me on your heart because I'm getting centered on my emotions and now I'm starting to interpret everything like knucklehead interpretation. Well, God, God must be rejecting me. You as a church family must be hating me. I mean, it's just crazy. It's crazy how it can get. What's your, what, what happens with you when your emotions take over? How do you look at people? How do you interpret people? Boy, we need to be centered on the gospel, don't we? Not on our feelings. Not on our feelings. Or we might find our lives centered on legalism. Legalism is when we attempt to achieve forgiveness from God or earn favor with God through our obedience to God. Now, obedience is very important, don't get me wrong, but our obedience does not earn God's favor. Our obedience is based on the favor we already have with God. We are called to obey, but our obedience is not the foundation of our relationship with God. The foundation of our relationship with God is solely on the person and work of Jesus. Here's a phrase. We obey the Lord without trusting in our obedience. I just, as I prepared this morning, I thought, I think that was some, that's a specific encouragement for somebody today. We obey the Lord without trusting in our obedience. We respond to God's word and God's will without hoping we respond enough. You, have you been there? I mean, it's, this is kind of where that shakes out. Am I dad enough? Or for me, am I pastor enough? Am I dad enough? Am I husband enough? Am I mom enough? I look at the, I look at the interweb or <laughs> whatever. I look at that thing and I look at all these other people and they look enough. Boy, if I compare my life to them, I'm not enough. I'm not enough for my kids. I'm not enough for my boss. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. Isn't that just what this, this legalism is? Somehow my being enough is going to be my solid ground. Somehow that's going, to, that's going to give me happiness and hope and strength. And it does just the opposite. Legalism undermines our justification. Our, it undermines our being counted, forgiven, and righteous and accepted. Not on the basis of our obedience or if we did enough, but on the basis of the finished work of Christ as the payment for our sins. Let me ask you, did you spend more time this week more aware of your sin than God's forgiveness? 
Did you do something this week that you knew was wrong and you believe that God loves you a little bit less this week? Or (laughs) did you have a really good week and you think God loves you more? All these could be indications that you're centered on legalism more than on the gospel. Here's a word. Here's a 10 cent word for you. Antinomianism. Have you heard that word? That's the belief that God loves to forgive people and that sin is just not that big a deal now that I'm Christian. This is great. I'm forgiven. And I pretty much can still live the way I've always lived. Because God's going to forgive me, right? He's kind of that Mr. Rogers kind of God. He's put on his sweater and with me, he never takes his sweater off, right? He's just going to forgive me. It really doesn't matter how I live. Guys, the gospel of grace does not make sin permissible because you're a Christian now. It actually empowers us to put sins, the sins of our flesh, to death. It's a temptation to presume upon God's grace rather than being dependent upon God's grace. If you have thoughts about your sin that makes them acceptable, because do you ever ever think this way? Well, I'm only human. Everyone would have done that in my situation. You see what we're doing? We're presuming upon God's grace. Or how about this? Do you make yourself feel a little bit better by comparing what you think are your little sins with the big sins of your spouse or your boss or the government? Do you blame your sin on your circumstances? When you hear a call to holiness in a sermon, do you think, oh, that's legalism? (laughs) Because we just... We want to be forgiven and want to keep on living our own life in the way we think it'll turn out to make us happy. That may be all indications that you're really not centered on the gospel. I'll never forget uh, having to confront a man and a woman uh, of an adulterous relationship they were having. It was in our church family. It wasn't here in Midland. It's a different church. The two couples both came to the church. And I'll never forget looking into the adulterous wife's eyes, confronting her with her sin, offering her a path of restoration and reconciliation and presenting the gospel afresh and, and her saying this, I know what I've done is sinful. But God wants me to be happy. So he's forgiven my sin and says it's okay for me to go on being in this relationship with this other married man. Wow. We live in a world that's really like that. The last way we can get off center from the gospel and centered on something else is when we substitute pragmatism for the gospel. This is when theology takes a backseat to methodology. To a pragmatist, it seems like if it works, it's right. If it works to make me happier or healthier or wealthier, it must be right. It must be acceptable. It's a view that you make your choices about what is right or wrong, not according to the Bible, but whether it seems to give you the results that you think you need. 
I've so often heard married couples, there's, there's no adultery, there's no spousal abuse, there's, they, they just would say they have irreconcilable differences, and then they, they, they tell me this, we're going to divorce because the children need peace, and the way of peace will be the way of divorce. Pragmatic, isn't it? It'll work out that way. No inspiration or information from the gospel. So those are just ways we shift off of center. And we need constant help to be re-centered on the gospel. And that's why we gather together to sing the gospel and preach the gospel and pray the gospel and counsel the gospel and practice the gospel. Paul goes further in verses 8 through 11 and he talks about how powerful the gospel is. It helps us to remember that, that the gospel is powerful to save us and transform us. And he describes it this way in verses 8 and 9. Look, look there in your scriptures. He says, last of all, this gospel has come to me, to one untimely born. Look at these words. Last of all, he appeared to me, for I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Did you hear those words? Least, last, last, least, and unworthy. But isn't it cool that Paul didn't stop there? He goes on to talk about the power that the gospel makes in the human heart. In verse 10, he says, But by the grace of the gospel, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but it was the grace of God that is within me. So look, what, isn't that kind of cool, the, the little threes? I was, the, I was the, the last, and God writes grace over it. I was the least, and God writes grace over it. And I was the most unworthy, and God writes grace over it. Oh, I'm so glad. Because you and I have more in common with those three words than we can imagine, don't we? We are the last and the least and the most unworthy as well. But God loves to write grace over our lives. And what happens when he does that? He gives us a new identity. It's, it's, it's a new identity. It's standing on the power of the gospel. He's not last. He's loved by God. He's not least. He's adopted as God's son. He's not unworthy. He's counted forgiven and righteous by God and Jesus Christ. The gospel shapes his life, it shapes his thinking, and it defines his identity. The gospel is a ruling reality. What reality are you living in? Are you living in the reality of your emotions dominating you and telling you what's right and wrong? Are you living in the reality that says, if I just do A, B, and C, I'll have a happy life? Are you living in the reality that puts the emphasis on your works and your being enough and somehow that's going to make things all right? Or are you living in the reality of God's grace given to you in Jesus Christ? Oh, we need to get centered again, don't we? This is an empowering gospel that empowers our mission and practice. And that's the last part of this. And, and, and this is really going to kind of carry the rest of the, the series. Because it's, there's a practice that the gospel produces. 
What was the ultimate goal of Paul here? Let's kind of think of the context of 1 Corinthians. Was it, was it to just ensure that believers understood the doctrine of the gospel? And that's, that's enough. If you just know that, you're going to be good. What about all the other topics he addressed in Corinthians? You know what he addressed in Corinthians? Marriage and divorce. Lawsuits between Christians. Divisions in the church. Sexual immorality, the roles of men and women, the abuse of and the proper use of spiritual gifts. These, these are culture issues. This isn't just doctrine, this is culture. And Paul is saying, you know what, guys? And he really started the book of Corinthians with a very similar text as he ends the book of Corinthians with. The gospel is the bookends that affect the culture of the Christian and the church. It's such good news. I'm so glad of that. Every book of the Bible is intended to do that for us, to help us make application of the gospel to our hearts and living on mission for Christ uh, in, in everyday life in a fallen world. When Paul speaks of first importance, he's not just talking about the theology of the gospel, he's talking about the functionality of the gospel. That's where he said, we stand in the gospel. So, how are you doing standing in the gospel today? In what ways, in what ways are you not connecting the gospel to what you're struggling with? See, that's what's supposed to happen. There's a practice of the gospel. There's an application of the gospel that God wants to give you. That's what Philippians 1.27 means when it says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus. There's a way of living our lives that reflects upon the gospel being at work in us. Let me give you just a few little examples. If some, don't raise your hand, but it's, Actually, if, if this is true of any one of you, I'd love to talk and pray with you at the end of the service or I invite you to pray with our prayer people. Chances are someone is really struggling. You, you, you even wonder what it feels like to have peace. I'm just so struggling to have peace. And typically what our knee-jerk reaction to that is to do is how can I eliminate whatever's disturbing the peace, right? And we try and we try. But what we're looking for doesn't come from the outside. It's just not coming from trying to change my circumstances or, or changing my relationship or changing my job. How can I ever have peace? Did you ever think, well, maybe the gospel has something to say about that? Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith in Christ, we therefore have peace with God... Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that the way to regularly experience the peace of God is not by trying to change your circumstances, it's looking back at the cross. God solved your greatest problem. You were not at peace with God because you were a sinner. You were not in a right relationship with God because you were a sinner. And Jesus steps forward and bears the punishment your sins deserve. He makes you right with God. He gives you peace with God. And when that happens, you know what comes next? The peace of God. But it's all back to the gospel, isn't it? 
How about if you're, you're, you've just been, just guilt and shame has been besetting you recently and you're, you're despairing for the fact that you, you know you have some sin habits, that they're just not dying very easily. What does Romans 8, 1 say? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ was condemned for all of your sins so that the sins that you're struggling with now they may be a struggle, but they're forgiven. Isn't that good news? It's way different to say, oh God, I want to change. I want to grow. I want to say no to sin, knowing that the sin is forgiven. And I'm accepted. And I don't have to do this to earn something with God. But because he loves me and his love is inspiring me. There's no condemnation. When someone, you, you feel like you've got a problem that is so big. You're struggling with unbelief. How many of you this morning are just really struggling with unbelief? You're, you, you look at your problems and you look at your faith and you're going, well, my faith ain't going to move no mountains today. There's just no, it's just not going to happen. Did you ever think the gospel has something to say about that? Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us everything else we need? You see what he did there? He takes us back to the cross and he said, you think that the problem in your marriage is your biggest problem? It, and it's not negating that there's a problem in your marriage. You think the problem with your health is your biggest problem, your finances, your fear of what's going on in our country, all problems. But the biggest one was that if you died in your sin, you would have to stand before God and receive the eternal judgment your sins deserved and be cast away from his saving presence, experiencing his full wrath. That was your biggest problem. And Romans 8.32 says, solved. <laughs> it's solved. It's conquered in Jesus and it's like this if-then sort of thing. If he solved the biggest thing that I needed to happen, wow, you know, somehow, mysteriously, that gives me faith for my marriage. That gives me faith for my job. It gives me faith to be able to share the gospel when I've been scared to death to share the gospel with someone. It just, you, see, we, you see, it just we could go on. There's countless illustrations about it. So let's close with Piper. I love what he says here about really of first importance. This is in your notes. He says, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter and be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a lasting difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on for centuries into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. 
You have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. I want to plead with you to make your life count for one thing, to be consumed by one thing, to be mastered by one thing, to be obsessed with one thing, and that one thing is the cross of Jesus Christ. I want to submit to you that if your life is not mastered by this one thing, it'll be wasted in this world. Would you stand with me? Eric, you want to come, my brother, and close us uh, in worship? You know... uh, Parents and pastors and church members, none of us are mind readers. None of us can see inside the heart of anyone else in this room. Only God knows your heart. Only God can see where you are. And I just would ask you this morning, what does God see when he looks at you? Does God see someone who's still putting their fist up to him and just still saying, I don't need you. Or I need you, but it's just to get what I want so I can keep living my life. What does God see when he, when he looks at you? Does he see you as still being dead in your sin, still being a prisoner of your sin? Well, if that's you today, God wants to open your eyes to see Jesus. He wants to open your eyes to look at what Christ did for you. You've wondered, does anybody really love you? Yeah. More than you imagine. And Christ hung on that cross and was beaten and whipped and his body ripped into pieces and his skin ripped into shreds as the punishment that your sins deserved. And you know what God's doing today? He's saying, so come to me. I'll not only save you from the punishment your sins deserved, I'll make you brand new. I'll give you a new life. I'll never let you go. Other people will reject you. I'll never let you go. For others of us, where have you been off-centered this week? And why don't we let this song help us be re-centered as the Lord prepares us to be mobilized to take this gospel to a world that definitely needs it. Amen.